Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast, where we help founders take their companies from startups to scale-ups. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Today, I chat with Damon Burton, who is the CEO and founder of SEO National. They optimize websites for Inc. 5000 companies, NBA teams, and businesses featured on Shark Tank. Damon is also the author of OutRank and has been featured in numerous publications. He has been a leader in the search engine optimization space for well over 15 years, and yeah, he really knows his stuff. The majority of our conversation today is focused on the how and the why of search engine optimization, you know, content strategies. We get into a little bit about paid ads versus organic, and he really shares his best practices for growing companies, taking what he's learned over the last 15 years and more relevantly, probably the last couple of years of what's working and what's not working. We also dig into a bit of his own high growing business and how he did it. Interestingly, I found he has only met in person six of his 40 employees, yet they're growing really rapidly and closing in on, on eight figures. So I think you'll find that dual benefit of this interview is to hear a little bit of his growth stories, but we really spend the majority of the time on how you can optimize your digital and your website to, to help you grow your business. Again, I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. And at the end, uh, please do make sure you visit our website where you can find the show notes, plus the links mentioned with, with Damon. And if you enjoy the podcast, please, please, please subscribe. So you're always the first to know when a new episode is released. Now let's get this interview started. Hey, Damon, welcome to the podcast. What's up, Brett? Hey, good to have you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm flipping the script a little bit on you this time. I appreciate, but... <laughs> appreciate the opportunity to chat. <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited to have you on here, both selfishly and just where I've been the journey with founders and the power and the value of, of content and SEO. But before we, we dig into that topic, it'd be great if you could share with the audience a little bit about your background, how you got here, and, and what you're working on today. Yeah, I, I started a company called SEO National in 2007, so just stayed in our lane of search engine optimization for the entirety of that 14, going on 15 years. Got a team of 30 plus, entirely remote, always have been, and worked with anywhere from mom and pops. Like We have a really long retention with clients. We still have our a dozen clients from 14 years ago, and then we've worked all the way up to NBA teams, Shark Tank featured businesses, Inc. recognized companies, multi-billion dollar international real estate companies. Married 14 years as well, father of three, and and I have a beard. There you go. <laughs> awesome. And I love so you started the business the same time you got married, same years ever. Did I hear that math right? With yeah, within within the same year. Yeah. I, I started a company in 07, got married in 06, but within yeah. within just a couple months of each other. I got married in September and then started the company in February. Got it. So you were you know, called a pioneer within the SEO space. I know it's always kind of been around, but you know, we were talking a little it's, bit offline, but I think it's it's come, as you said, full circle, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about the evolution of it. But yeah, it's super weird to think about that because I don't I don't think I, I definitely don't consider myself like a pioneer, but it's weird to look at it in hindsight and really compare where that spotlight is gone and the evolution of it. And at the time I didn't realize how much in its infancy that I was jumping in. But yeah, looking back, I, I guess I was one of those early adopters of SEO. Got it. Yeah. And coming at it from a B2B standpoint, right? One of my last corporate roles was actually a startup in, on the corporate side, but it was a digital agency heavily in Facebook ads and Google, mm. right? And 
back then, it seemed like you could go for the transactional sale without doing the upfront work, right? Of, you know, and I'm going to butcher this from somebody that I heard on a podcast and I should write down the name, but the three things get known, get leads, get sales, right? Mm-hmm. It's like even five years ago, B2B, everybody was going straight to, to get leads with paid ads and all those things. But now that that doesn't work, yeah. at least in my opinion, but you're the expert. So I'd love to kind of get from you. Kind of, why don't you share with this yeah. the evolution and maybe why we're at a, a tipping point now in the sense of, right, it's it's no longer optional. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been interesting to watch that evolution. And, and I'm not, a lot of marketers, it's part of their shtick to throw rocks at other forms of marketing. And and I'm not a guy that says paid ads suck. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you candidly the pros and cons of it, but I'm not one to say it it's a zero sum game. What's been interesting about evolution over the last 14, 15 years that I've been in it. And then my background goes back a little further because I originally got into search engine optimization because my background was in design. And so I've seen like this, this long-term evolution of SEO. And when I first got into it, it was kind of the newer thing. And so it was sexy because it was new. But what's been interesting is along came paid ads, Facebook ads, and then that was the new thing. And so that was the sexy thing. And as you said, like all the attention went there, at least like the mainstream attention, SEO never went away. And my agencies continue to grow year after year. And obviously other agencies have done well over the years, but it seemed like the spotlight turned away from SEO and towards paid ads. But what's been interesting is it's as it feels like it's, it's coming full circle. And part of that, I think, is like a perfect storm of multiple things, COVID being part of that. But then also just the cost per acquisition is increasing. It's becoming more expensive to do paid ads. And like, look, we can simplify the pros and cons of paid ads versus SEO pretty simplistically. Like the, the only downside to SEO is that it takes time to kick in. And we can talk about the logistics of why it's just like a lot of heavy lifting you got to do. But once that kicks in, then it's way more stable and it's scalable and you don't have to compete on the cost per acquisition on paid ads. But then the opposite can be said about paid ads, because with paid ads, it's like, in theory, you can get going pretty quickly. You can get a paid ad up and going in a day or two. But then what happens is you're always fighting for that budget. You're always fighting against competition. There's a constant change in, you know, some people say, I think it's weird that it must be a moving target where organics, you always have algorithms that are changing and this and that. But for me, I think that it's almost the same with, I would say that about paid ads, because with paid ads, you have to go in and check your budget every day. You have to go in and check your ad account, especially, I mean, how many times do us digital marketers have friends that say, does anybody know how to get my Facebook ad account turned back on and just got shut down? So I think you're chasing way more stuff with paid ads. So really it depends like, okay, do I want quicker return now at a smaller profit margin or am I okay with delayed gratification? And then once it kicks in, it's way more stable, less you know headache and hurdles and politics and red tape. So there, there's pros and cons with both of them, but I mean, that's kind of the crash course. And so I think why it's coming full circle is that what I would call is ad fatigue And so people are getting burned out on always having to adjust their budget, check their budget, babysit their budget, see what the competition is doing. Or you may have, you may have a home run where an ad is performing really well. And then all of a sudden it just dies and you got to go turn it off and turn it back on and start over. And and so there's been some, you know, big influencers that I've talked to in the paid ad space, especially in paid social media. 
And I've done podcasts with them and they say, Damon, if you told me about SEO six months to a year ago, I would have thought it was the most boring thing in the world and I would want nothing to do with it. But now it's super attractive because I am just burned out on chasing a dollar in, two dollars out. So now do you want to spend five grand a month on paid ads for and get back maybe a thousand dollars in profit? Or do you want to spend two, three, four thousand dollars a month in organic and get nowhere for six to twelve months? But then all of a sudden it's almost entirely pure profit after that with with way less headache. So just depends on what your tolerance level is and your patience. And your budget. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More yeah, now and more later. Yeah. It's interestingly, and I think that's maybe a good transition because a lot of the folks I work with are almost exclusively B2B. And there's probably two camps. One is still the founder led, or I'm thinking about this startup. So it's my founder, maybe a co-founder and maybe a couple of other people. And they're not even thinking about content at that point that I'm kind of encouraging now is the time. So having you on it, mm-hmm. hopefully reinforce you telling them full of crap would be helpful. But then you get to, <laughs> so from founder led to a scale up essentially, right? And making that transition from, hey, I'm selling to everybody in my network. It does help to have content and tell my story. Now I got to reach people that that don't know me or don't know my business. And that's a huge blocker for you know 99% of the, the companies trying to make that journey. So if we mm-hmm. kind of take a step back, I'd love to get your perspective. Hey, I'm just still a founder. And what should I be mm-hmm. thinking about today and building for the future? And then two, as I'm starting to scale, does that that change or what should I be thinking about? So hopefully people can start early on this versus trying to play catch up when they when they're really trying to grow the business. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's important to think about because when when I was just given the pros and cons of SEO versus paid ads, the one con that I had touched on was SEO takes time. Now there is truth to people saying, well, you, you want to commit to at least a year in SEO and uh, and the reason why is because I'll, I'll give you the crash course on like how we launch a campaign. So the first two to four weeks is just research. So what are, obviously we look into keywords that they can monetize, but I want to emphasize monetize because you want to look into where can you drive a return? You don't want to just show up on page one for a random phrase that nobody searches for just for bragging rights. Right. You want to show up for words that you can monetize that align with the right buyer intent. So you go through this whole process of doing much keyword research. And part of that is competitive analysis. So you go look at the competitors and go, what are they targeting? What's good? What's bad? Where Where are their weaknesses? Where are the opportunities you can capitalize? And then you kind of blend all that data together and go, okay, that's super, this target is super competitive, but that doesn't mean I, I don't want to target it. It just helps set realistic expectations of what's long-term target, what's a short-term target. So you go through all this process of just doing research. Then after that, you go, okay, now I need to start implementing things. And when you break down SEO, there's a there's a hundred things that go into it, but they all primarily fall into two categories. So one category is what you do on your website and the other category is what you do externally to your website. And then in between that sits content because you can have content on the website and external. Now, here's, what you, here's part of why things take so long is because most of your gains are gonna come from that content and external credibility. But that will only be effective if your that first category, your website's foundation is solid. So we usually start by doing a site structure audit, cleaning up the design, ensuring it's mobile friendly. A lot of times the design is fine, but there's ways that you can make it load more efficiently and Google can scan the content better. And so we're two to four weeks into it just to do the research. Then we're another two to four weeks into it just to solidify the website structure. So you could be two months into this before you even start creating content, distributing any assets. 
then you get into the, the content creation and distribution. And we can talk about different ways you create content, but before you start writing that content, you spend all that time researching, what are the words that we can monetize? Well, then you got to do another round of research where it says, okay, what type of content can I produce to support those targets? Then you can only rank for what search engines can read. And so the logistics behind writing that much stuff to close the gap on how much of an expert that Google looks at your competition and the gap in content that you have or the gap in the external credibility that you have versus the guys that have already been doing that. It just takes time. You just can't snap your finger and create all those assets. So that's why it takes a little bit of time as far as uh, I'm trying to go back to the original question, which was, what do you, what do you want to think about? So that's why, that's why it's important to understand, like, where do you want to be in not only one year, but two years and five years with SEO. Because if, if we compare it again to paid ads, like paid ads, one of the advantages of paid ads is it's a little more flexible. And what I mean by that is you can turn it off and on. And so if, if you're burning through money and it's not driving a return, you can turn it off and pivot and recalculate. With SEO, part of why you spend so much time doing research is because you don't have as much flexibility to pivot later. Because if you spend six months producing content about topic A, and then you realize, crap, I can't monetize that. We need to change to topic B. Well, you're kind of starting over and just wasted six months. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to understand, like, not only what can we offer now, but what will we continue to offer? And this is more applicable, like if you're a retail business, because if you're a service-based business, you're probably not going to change your, your, your product too much. If you're selling a retail product, are you going to sell, if, if you're selling sporting goods and are you going to sell those same running shoes in three years? Probably not. Right. So then you have to figure out like, what's the broad approach that is inventory that I will always have in stock. So not only can I monetize it later, but then I don't waste any efforts in between then. So yeah, I mean, I'll take a pause because I'm, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I think that kind of illustrates the importance of understanding what the overall long-term objectives are when you start considering SEO. Yeah, no, I think that it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, kind of what I'm hearing and seeing is I, I talk to founders, both that have made the journey and then the ones that are starting the journey. And I think one of the, one thing I just want to clarify. So in paid ads, even though it's paid, it may be more to create that awareness, right? Because I think B2B mm -hmm. buyers are going to spend more time researching and, and probably not pulling the trigger on a, an item, right? If they've never heard of you before and they see a paid ad. So are you seeing more of a paid ad going into creating that awareness and the education? Or are you still seeing paid ads more geared towards the transactional piece? Or it, it, it'll be both. It's going to depend on what the product or service is. And if it's, a, you know, if it is a product or is it a service, because on the service-based side, yeah, it's usually you have to create that awareness on a product. You can start, this brings up an important topic of understanding who your audience is and the different types of values of paid versus organic, because organic, the people already want your thing because they have the intent to go research what it is. And then they're trying to get, they're trying to find the person that says we can solve your problem or your pain point with paid ads. It's a little more intrusive. Like it's interruptive, it's disruptive based marketing. And so it's like, Hey, here's a shiny object. Look at me. And so what you have to do is one is organic is, is you're trying to target the buyer intent and what their pain point 
audience are and solve their problem. With paid ads, you're stereotyping your consumer. What's their avatar? What's their what's their persona? And then you're saying, okay, most of them are male versus female. Most of them are in this age group. Most of them like these kind of things. And then you're trying to just catch the right person at the right time. And so depending on what your product is, yeah, you can just go for the transactional item. But if it's a bigger ticket item or if it's service-based, then usually that's more of an emotional purchase. And so they have to do more research. And so you do have to create that awareness and those touch points before they'll finally convert later. Yeah, that's, that's good. Good. And you, you said something interesting to a lot of interesting things, but one is typically, or historically, I should say a lot of the B2B world is spent differentiating on features and benefits and with technology, the way it is, even if I had a competitive difference in tech three months, my competitor is going to copy it if it's that good. So it becomes now to what you had mentioned about problem solving. So if I'm thinking about SEO and even content, is that a better path of the problem I'm solving for my customer versus the features and benefits? Or is, again, is that too of a, too broad of a a question? I think it's dynamic. It again, depends on product versus service. And even, even within products, like what type of product, I mean, if it's like a $10 widget, then if it just eases whatever that minor pain is, the price point is so low that people are just going to buy the $10 widget. But if it's like $1,000 winter coat for skiing and snowboarding, then that's a bigger commitment. And so they're going to research the features and understand the brand credibility a little bit more. And what's the warranty and what's the reviews. So yeah, it's going to depend on what the how intense the pain point is and then also the price of the ticket. Yeah. And, and again, I haven't talked about it yet, but your website, you got a ton of really good content and tools and your ebook was, should it be a real book, not an ebook, but it opened up my eyes to a lot of things that I was doing. Doing and not doing right. I consider myself kind of a you know smart enough to be dumb, right? <laughs> in SEO, and as I started to think about you know the process I was going through, right? So you've got kind of the the technical aspect, right? The keywords on the website, and I found out, and you also provide a, a free audit of that on your through your company mm-hmm. as well, and it showed the gaps where I'm at. So part of me and I'm speaking for the general audience, but me specifically can get overwhelmed that, right, hey, your score was X, you don't have meta tags for level one, level two, or level three. And I'm like, I have no idea how to fix that, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think there's the macro where I think I'm getting much more comfortable with the content. I know who my audience is, right? I've, like I said, 100 episodes of the podcast, and I know I'm not doing enough to convert right into other areas. So, you know, maybe just if there's... I'm trying to think the best way to ask this from a technical standpoint, right? As I'm starting to set up my website or really going to make an effort to get better at, at the SEO, you know, Mm -hmm. is there some high level stuff like the 80, 20 rule? So is there 80% that I can do potentially myself that's going to give me the most return and then work with, with someone like yourself to help me really refine it? Is it, is it as simple as an 80, 20 or for the more novice? What I usually say is, is the answer is probably going to be surprising is, is keep it simple. Like don't overcomplicate it because there, if you're going to get into technical stuff, which is important to do, you can get into some really technical stuff, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, who can tell a story the best and who can emotionally connect with the reader and who can solve their pain point. And so the reason why I tell you that is the listeners are, own a business for a reason, or they're passionate about something. 
And so share that expertise through your content. And we can talk about different ways that you can do that here in a minute, because candidly writing content sucks. So like, how do you write content? So I say to focus on content because I continually see the most simplistic websites outperform the most visually amazing websites. And the reason why is because the simple websites just get to the point. And it's like, here's your call to action, hold, hold the consumer's hand and guide them to where you want them to go. You don't need to wow them. What people are looking for is in that first second, when they see your website, they just want to go, okay, I trust Brett. And then after that, it's how can he now solve my problem? So all you got to do is immediately communicate your value propositions and your credibility. And then after that, it doesn't have to be that amazing. And so I would focus on your content. And as far as on a technical side, there's a couple of things that you can do. One is obviously make sure your website is mobile friendly, because as of 2016, Google made a huge push towards emphasizing mobile first websites, mobile first indexing mobile first, because the majority of consumers, uh, the majority of search engine queries are now on mobile devices. And that'll vary a little bit based on the industry, but it's super important to make sure you have a mobile friendly web design. Now, part of that is also page speed because everybody's impatient, but especially on a mobile device, because the data may be slower. You can use websites like there's a free website called GT metrics. It's just the letters GT and then metrix.com. And they have a really, really cool speed analysis tool. It can get technical, but that's why I like it because it gives you a high level view that says like, hey, your website takes three seconds, eight seconds, 12 seconds, whatever. And, and it'll give you like a summary of, it's mostly images that are delaying this or videos or scripts or whatever. And so it'll give you that high level, but then you can drill down for the people that are comfortable making those edits. And it'll tell you, very granularly what image what video what script and so if you want to get into some of the technical things the, the first place i would start is just the basic structure like page speed and mobile friendliness okay that's awesome and a perfect transition into all right like you said there's a bunch of ways you can go with content from you know podcasts to blog posts to videos you know mm -hmm. what's kind of a again i'm, I'm assuming the theme is going to be keep it simple but you know, any recommendations on, you know, how to get started or what to prioritize as you're getting started? Yeah, we can answer it two ways. One is which will search engines be able to read easier, which was going to be text-based content because algorithms are, algorithms are getting smarter at understanding dynamic audio and video media, but it's not perfect. So text is going to be read and indexed the, the best, but text is usually the part that sucks the most. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what you can do to kind of get around that is, so, so my second, my second answer would be do whatever you're comfortable. Like anything is better than nothing, as long as it's unique content. So what I often give as a recommendation is, do you feel comfortable recording a selfie video? Do you feel comfortable recording an audio soundbite? Then start with that because what you can do is you can record the selfie video and then you can use programs like Rev or Descript and then it will transcribe that audio. And so there you go. You have 90% of your text-based article now written. Just go back and edit the last 10% to improve grammar and spelling and proper structure. And so that way you can mass produce content in your proper voice, in your persona and answer it in the way that you would properly solve that problem, but then put it in a text-based format or you can outsource it. But if you outsource it, here's what you have to understand. Like a while ago, we talked about the importance of 
mapping out your, your content calendar and doing all this research first. So if you outsource it, you have got to do that research still because the content producers are going to be as good or as bad as the documentation that you provide them. So if you don't tell them very specifically what you want to write about and why and what the takeaway from the content piece you want to create is, it's not going to happen. So I would map out at least the the topics, the agendas, and the intent of an article piece. And then there's there's some cool webs. There's a whole bunch of freelancer websites. One that I used to use years ago before we brought writing in-house was iWriter, just the letter I and then writer.com. And that website's cool because it's kind of auction-based. And so you can you have this huge immediate access to a large talent pool, but you can go in there and you can say, okay, what's more important to me? The length of the content, the quality of the writer, or the price. And so you can adjust each of those and say, I'm only willing to spend $10 per piece. And it's going to say, well, that'll get you this in length with this quality of writer. Or you can do the opposite and say, I only want people with 4.8 stars out of five or better. And I want at least a thousand words. And it's going to say, okay, well, that's going to cost you at least this. So you can go in there and adjust like your preferences, whether it's quality or, or you know, budget. And then no matter what, I would still proof it. And it gives you this really cool proofing mechanism where if the writing is just way off the mark, you can just decline it and it'll immediately go back into the talent pool. And so you don't have to chase another writer. Mm -hmm. Then you can add favorites. And so like if you get a writer that you really like over time, then you can send projects directly to them. So iWriter is, and I'm sure there's other websites like that, but if you want to outsource it, that's a really cool tool. So long as you do your due diligence and you know map out like, like they can't read your mind and just make up something perfect. You got to give them some guidance. Kind of specs and what you, yeah, I think you outlined it nicely of what you're exp- or what you want to accomplish with the end of the the, the text or mm-hmm. the the article or the blog post, which which makes sense. So so thinking about it from that standpoint, so you know, for example, we'll use use me. So I post, I do audio video for all the podcasts. Right. And then just link it into the website so you could actually listen to the podcast on the website. You don't have to go to iTunes or the other places. Mm-hmm. Keep it simple, but I'm not transcribing the, the podcasts and putting it into a, a blog post. So is that, mm-hmm. again, just a very specific tactical thing? Was, is that a recommendation that, you know, write a blog post or a summary from each of the podcast yeah yeah what you can do is i can give you an example that you can look at it's my pod i'm I'm phasing out my podcast but this exact question is represented there so um learningfromothers.com is is a website that i've done podcasts over the years and and we do exactly that so we have the podcast episode um and then we have the embedded player like you said so if people want to listen to it right there, they can, or in the sidebar, they can go to iTunes and things like that. But below that are the transcripts because the the search engine value of that, like the transcripts are not necessarily for users. Users can certainly use it, but it's definitely a search engine play because they can read things better than they can hear things. And so what you can do is like, it depends on like the two major players, there's a bunch of transcription services, but the two that I usually hear are rev.com. I think it's two Vs. And then the one that I personally use, my team uses is Descript. Now the pros and cons of those is rev is a little more white glove service. And so it costs a little bit more because they have some manual transcription involved. So their accuracy rate is, is a little bit better. And, and I say a little bit better because it's not that they're bad. It's just the script is pretty good, but it's completely AI or, you know, automated. And so there, there's a little bit more margin for error through Descript, but it's way cheaper. And so what, what we tend to do is so that we can scale this, but also acknowledge the, the small opportunity and margin for error is when you'll see on the learning from others website is we have 
the transcripts and it says episode transcripts and we have it in a little toggle where you can click on it and it opens it up. But when you open it up, there's just a one sentence disclaimer that says transcripts generated through whatever potential, potential grammar and spelling errors may exist. And so you just kind of acknowledge that right at the front. And then beyond that, like who cares? Like most listeners are going to be able, if they read it, they're going to be, under, be able to understand the general context and search engines certainly will too, because they use like this word that gets thrown around is like semantic. And so like search engines will understand what the general tone and intent of the overall conversation was based on the entirety of the conversation. So it doesn't have to be perfect, but so I would transcribe it. And then if you want to take it one step further in the transcripts, we use what's called schema. Now what schema is, is when a search engine goes to a website, it makes a lot of educated guesses. It says, I think Brett's website is a podcast. I think the content of the, the podcast episodes are largely business related. And I think this is the guest. And I think this makes all these assumptions. What schema does is it says, hey, hey, Google, you don't have to guess. I'm telling you very clearly, this is the name of the podcast. This is the guest. This is the transcript. Now, what it is, is you don't see it on the front end visually. It's, it's coded on the, on the backside in the source code. And what it does is it, it makes these little signals that says podcast name equals X, guest equals Y, publication date equals Z. And there's endless types of schema. There's e-commerce schema. And so you can have product name is this, product description is this, price is that. And so when you get into schema, like I'll, I'll go on a tangent a little bit, but on schema, like if you use, if you're on an e-commerce website, Shopify has product schema built in already. So you just add the product name and price and it'll add the schema for you. If you're on WordPress and you use WooCommerce, it has schema built in as well. But there's an endless amount of schema. So there's like just off the top of my head, there's, you know, product schema, there's FAQ schema, there's attorney schema, there's job schema, there's podcast schema. So beyond us just talking about podcasts, I would look into schema, like whatever you, the listener, whatever industry you're in, go search industry X schema and see if there's something that you can implement. Because what happens is Google will better trust that content because you took the opportunity to more clearly communicate whatever it is you put in schema. So now back to the podcast schema, there's a, there's two types of schemas that we use on learning from others. And then we're actually rolling this out as an SEO strategy for our clients to have podcasts. We're going through an embedding schema on their episodes. And so you can do podcast schema, which says podcast episode name, date, description, what's the featured podcast image. And then there's also audio object schema, which is transcript. And so then when Google goes to the, the individual episode URL, which is another thing I'd recommend is have every episode have its own URL. Because if you just have like a podcast page and you just vomit hundred episodes on it, then that's just one page. But if you fragment those out into 100 individual episodes, well now Damon as a guest, anybody searching Damon Burton, Brett may get some recognition credibility from that query. And then Brett's other guests, when somebody searches that name, Brett's website may show up because that person has an individual link that not only doesn't talk about 99 other people and dilute the value, but then Brett added the podcast schema that says, here's the guest and here's the publication date and here's what Damon talks about. So if you add that schema, whether it's podcast or anything else, like you're going to, you're, you're going to better communicate to search engines, what the content or the product is about. So it's going to better trust and be more willing to show your website as a result of that clear communication. Uh, that's excellent. And yeah, I, 
bottom line, keep it friendly for Google, right? Don't try to outsmart Google, but just make it friendly for Google. I've heard that advice before, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, what they say is like treat Google, treat search engines like a visitor. It's just an everyday consumer. Everyday consumers don't like slow websites. Everyday consumers don't like crappy web design. Everyday consumers don't like horrible written text. Like I just had a guy message me yesterday on LinkedIn and say, hey, can you optimize this website? By Can we use non not and he put it in quotes like non-viewable content. So basically what he was asking is can we hide the content? No, because if you hide it from a consumer, it's worthless to a consumer, therefore it's worthless to search engines. No, oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean it makes sense, right? Back to your motto, keep it simple and you know, make again treat your customers like prospects, prospects like customers. So treat Google like a, a prospect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think it, it makes perfect sense. And so I do want to be sensitive to your time. But so thinking about that from a, a go back to the the startup to scale up right so the early days the founder should have some content starting to build but then really as you starting looking to scale so if you want to go say from a million dollars to 10 million dollars you really need to have your seo engine right unless you want to work harder right with paid ads and other things seo is going to be the foundation so is that would that be kind of your recommendation that hey in the early days it's just a couple of us we're hustling we're working through our network to sell people content still important but is that the time to start building up as you're learning from customers? So then when you're ready to scale, it's not a six month window or what's kind of a recommended best practice. Yeah, I don't, I don't want folks to spend too much time too early in case the business doesn't go the direction they want it to. But I also understand the value and, and the power of you get, if you get this right. It, it depends on if you have more time versus money and, and where your patient sits in between. Cause look, you got to put food on the table. So, I mean, if paid ads, uh, puts food on the table and gets that initial cash flow going and do paid ads. But ultimately long-term SEO usually has the biggest return with the biggest profit margins and better client retention rate and you know better repeat buyers because they came to you with the intent to buy and you solved their problem and it wasn't an interruptive ad. So at some point you want to visit SEO for sure. It's in very rare occasion, does it not make sense to do SEO? And one example might be if, if you sell like a $1 widget, because the the if you're spending two to five to ten thousand dollars a month in SEO, you're gonna have to sell a crap ton of widgets to pay for SEO. But other than that, usually it, it makes more sense. And then the other thing that you got to think about is the SEO paid ads doesn't help SEO, but SEO can help paid ads. And like one example that I mean by that is through the journey of of building out a proper SEO campaign is you make your website load quicker you make it more mobile friendly and that's part of the ad quality score is like if we if somebody clicks on this ad and they go to a website google says after they click on the ad what happens is the content in the ad relevant to the text in the is the is the text in the ad relevant to the content on the website are we sending them to a proper landing page and does it load quickly and what happens if it's on a desktop versus a mobile device and so it takes in all these factors that SEO proactively solves that can benefit paid ads which will reduce your cost per click now the other advantage is that depending on price point and the emotional commitment on your on your item if it's a bigger ticket like if they got to do more research after they see your paid ad, where do you think they're going to go next? They're going to go Google your brand or your name or your company to figure out what are the reviews, what shows up, what what are the the you know what sort of positive comfort can can be reinforced before they spend all this money or commit to this long term thing, whatever it is. So organic has a lot of other areas that it overlaps to benefit above and beyond just what it can do to drive drive its own return. 
That makes sense. And, you know, one, one last topic I want to get your thoughts on, because I think it's going to be important because even like, I think I told you offline, I consider myself a wannabe do it yourself DIY, but I've also learned the power of, of outsourcing. Uh-huh. And I think anything, anytime you're outsourcing any part of your business, right, you really should be at least educated to have a good conversation being able to filter. So, I'm guessing a vast majority of our listeners would end up partnering with somebody to help them with this. So any guidelines or recommendations, right, as they start to look, obviously, if they're looking at you, which I'd recommend, but just in general, what are some of the the, the important guidelines we should be asking as we're starting to consider a partner in this space? Yeah, the most important thing I, that I always recommend is is to just look for transparency. So when you ask the when you're shopping around SEO agencies and you ask them, you know, ask them, what's your fulfillment model? Like, what are you going to do? And you don't necessarily have to understand the really technical detail and the jargon, but what you're looking for is can they clearly communicate what the hell they're even going to do? Because like a lot of these, a lot of these groups, it's just like smoke and mirrors because SEO, SEO does take time and, and we've kind of communicated a little bit why, but some agencies will take advantage of that. Like they, they have a sales guy that's just there to make a sale. And then after you sign, like he doesn't care and he's not part of the equation. And right. so ask like, what are you going to do? And then if they start to give examples of, well, we're going to focus on content or backlinks and say, well, great. What's your content strategy or great. What's your backlink strategy? And you don't necessarily have to care about the details. You just want them to be able to communicate the details that they know what they're actually going to do and they're not going to just do this out of the box thing. And like, you're just a number to them because there has to be some, a little bit of intimate relationship that's established between the business owner and their point of contact or the SEO agency in general, because like you have to lean on each other. The SEO agency has to come to you and go, what are your long-term goals? So we can actually make you money and keep you as a client long-term. And so then you have to come back and be able to help them help you. And so you have to lean on each other a little bit. So there has to be some sort of ability to have a transparent relationship. So that's the first thing that, that I always recommend. If you want like an actual list, there's there's two things that you can do. I'll give a, I'll, I'll tell you where you can get a hold of my book here in a minute, uh, but you can also Google Damon Burton Forbes and I contribute to Forbes on the topic of SEO. And, and one of the pieces that I wrote I got like two or three dozen articles, but in there, if you just go to my Forbes page and click through, you'll see one that says, there's two that come to mind. One is four red flags when shopping around SEO company. So look at that. And then there's another one that's about SEO myths. And then, and then there's even, actually there's a third one that I can think about now that's like, when do I even need SEO? Like you may not need it right now, just to your, your point a moment ago, like at what point does it make sense? So there's a whole bunch of, of content on there. Every time I contribute there, I try to write about these things that will help support the people that are shopping around. So there's that. And then like you had touched on a book. I wrote a book last year called Outrank. And in it, I have an entire chapter that's basically this, like, okay, either you are a business and you're shopping around SEO. So here's the questions to ask, or you're a little guy and you need to do this on your own. So here's how you qualify where to start on your own. So you can get the book on Amazon or Audible or I, or I give away free PDF copies at freeseobook.com. And it's got a whole chapter on exactly this. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And highly, highly recommended, right? Even like I said, I thought I knew enough to be dangerous, but I realized how little I actually knew going through it. So I appreciate it. And we'll yeah. link to all this in the uh, the show notes as well. So anything else, major topics we missed before I get to my my one final question that you know maybe we should have covered that people should be thinking about? Well, one that's off topic a little bit is the importance of social proof because kind of a recurring theme and what we talked about is like, if you're a startup, what can you do on your own? So even above and beyond SEO or paid ads, you can get into establishing a credibility through social media. And, and that's largely where my company continues to grow is a lot of these things that we've discussed in the podcast, like I just give away for free. And my, my main platform of choice is LinkedIn. Like that's more where my audience is. And so like, if you go look at my content history on LinkedIn, like I never send anybody to a landing page. I never send them to an opt-in form. I never send them to an email. I don't even have an email list. I don't even have a funnel. And so when you go to that content, like what I'm doing is I'm establishing credibility and then I'm staying top of mind for, for the consumers. And so in my mind, there's only, there's like three types of content consumers because a lot of people say, well, why would I give away all the answers for free? And so to me, it's like, look, you got either the person that will take your answers and run and go implement them. And for me, that's great because a, I help somebody B, they were never my client anyway. Mm -hmm. And so the type of the people that have the time or the interest in implementing all of these things, like if I can help them, great, but those are not my my target audience, my target audience are the business owners that will value their time more and they just want it done properly. And so the second type of content consumer is going to be somebody that says, well, I don't need this now, but I might need it later. Or I know somebody that does. And then they either come back or send you a referral. And then the third type of content consumer is the person that says that solves my problem. I need it now. And then just signs up and hits you up. So when I started really leaning heavily into social proof fairly recently, about two years ago, and for the first, I'd say three months, it took, took some time to figure out like, what's the dance? What's my voice? Because for me, I wanted to be able, like, why couldn't I do social media by way? Why couldn't I just help people? What, like you see all these other gurus and it's like the gross vomity sales pitches, every post. That's just, for me, it's cringy and I didn't want to do that, but I wanted to see if this could contribute to the business model. But then at the other side, like I want to also talk about personal things, like my appreciation for my wife and my kids and like those more personal things. So how do I not distance my business audience while also still being able to talk about my appreciation for business and family? And so it took some time to figure that out. But then after that first three months, like then months six through nine, it really started to take off. And around that nine month mark, I, I started to quantify it. And I go, well, I've got a couple of deals about it. And, and if, since you've read the book, you probably saw this in the chapter where I talk about be human. And I literally quantify some of those deals. Like this post turned into a $5,000 month retainer. This post turned into a $10,000 website deal. And so after that nine months, I quantified that it was adding about 150 grand in annual recurring contracts just from that, like above and beyond all the other stuff that we're doing in existing contracts. And since then, it's only continued to gone up. I haven't quantified it since then because that was enough for me to go, okay, like this is working. It's the part of the process that I enjoy establishing relationships, giving away free value, and then it's supporting the, the growth of the company. So that's one thing that listeners can look at is like, okay, A, where's my audience? So for me, it's LinkedIn and, and Facebook. It's not Instagram. It's not TikTok. And so that's not where I am. And then also be like, 
where do you want to be? Even if my audience was on TikTok, I still probably wouldn't be there because I don't want to be the dancing SEO guy. <laughs> and so you have to figure out like where your audience is and where you're comfortable being. And then after that, like give it time and commit to giving away value. You know, the first couple of months, there was almost no return out of it and very little engagement. But now I average two to 10,000 views every post every single day. So I, I tend to post Monday through Friday and, and bell on the weekends, but so if you've had a minimum of 2000 views per post, that's 10,000 eyeballs every week for free. And then a lot of these will get five to 10,000 views. So, I mean, the, the amount of, of exposure is substantial and then it creates a network. Like I just, yesterday I sent two books to two different countries that were people that connected with me on LinkedIn. And, and so now we get tons of people that come in. What's interesting for me is, is they'll, they'll start following me on LinkedIn because of me establishing my expertise there, but they'll convert on Facebook. Like they'll follow me over to Facebook and then it's, they establish a relationship with you and they follow you because of whatever you're an expert in. But then it's the post about my wife and kids that they go, I resonate with that. And then they send me a message and say, Hey, that was really cool for you to say that about your wife, by the way, can you look at my website? So it's been really interesting to see like that journey of establishing a relationship. So I, I guess the long story short is give away, give away free value and don't, don't be afraid to just give away all the answers and then be open to establishing relationships and just like showcase who you are. Like that's why people convert and that's why people buy into, they pay my company SEO national, but they bought in because subconsciously they established a relationship with the transparency that Damon as a person offered through social proof. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm seeing that that trend, right? When I talk to founders and founders are almost now, at least the ones I talk to are tied to their brand and their business and they're human and it's personal and, you know, it just resonates. You're right. It's no longer just buying from that company name that you have no idea who runs it, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, I've kind of come full circle in the sense that I used to 100% believe that if you had a good product and you executed really well, you could build a really nice business and you probably still could, but man, the companies that are getting traction and growing quickly all have that human element or the personal mm -hmm. tie into what that brand, even in B2B, right? It, it's even become more relevant or stark. And I don't think it's just the people I follow because I'm not selecting founders based on mm -hmm. certain criteria. So again, smaller sample size, but it seems to be a, a core theme. So you're definitely... Yeah. I mean, we've, for being a marketing company, it's kind of ironic because we don't do almost any marketing on our own. We obviously do SEO, but we don't do any paid ads. And so here I stand behind a, a 30 plus team company that does seven figures annually. We've never spent a dollar on advertising. It's all based on referrals and social proof. <laughs> That's the future, man. I'm, I'm telling you, we talked a little offline, the old enterprise B2B companies that were all forced, not forced, but cold outreach from salespeople and just trying to connect and quotas. And that's, I mean, the digital is the way that people want to find. And if you can make it human, it's that much better. No, so I think there's so much value in what you just said there. And one last follow-up and then I'll get to, I promise I'll get yeah. to my last yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm actually pretty open today. So you're good. Okay, <laughs> good. So of the five, the five days you're posting, I'm trying to do that on LinkedIn. Is there 
do you have kind of a formula that you're using that, hey, mm -hmm. I'm using text only, I'm using some video, using the podcast episode? Have you found anything that resonates better with folks? Uh, or just... I do have a formula, but not so much on text versus video, but I can touch on text versus video. So the reason why I don't have a you know text on Monday, I do have a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday approach. And I'll tell you what that is in a minute, but I, it, it's not broken down by format. And the reason why is because it's interesting to see the evolution of algorithms on, on social media platforms, because that's what you have to understand is everything is an algorithm. And so what works on LinkedIn will not work the same on Facebook. And so like, I'll, I'll talk specifically about LinkedIn because that's where I get the most traction. And, and I've, I've spent more time looking at the detail of what performs and what doesn't is a year and a half, two years ago, video crushed it. And I'm not saying it doesn't say video doesn't, but, but text-based content for me outperforms video now. And so like, I'll kind of randomly rotate them where it's like, I'd say like eight or nine out of 10 posts for me on LinkedIn is text-based. And then some of those, probably half of those all also have an image attached to it. But what's interesting is it changes. And, and I, I think why is because the marketers abuse it. And, and then LinkedIn goes, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those guys are getting a lot of traction unnecessarily because they manipulated the format just perfectly in this consistent theme. So let's, let's adjust how we look at that theme. And so then, then the other guys go around and figure out, like, I, I don't play in that game of how to manipulate it. Like I just post on like what works well for me, but I've noticed what works well for me and what doesn't. And so I think it, it just evolves as as marketers abuse it. And so videos was, was crushing it and got abused. And then I, it will probably come full circle in the next nine months and videos will crush it again because we abused images next or something, you know? <laughs> so I would, I would see what works best for you. And a lot of that's going to be based on your industry too. I mean, for me, like my audience is people that are interested in marketing and SEO and business. And so those are people that tend to be more willing to read and do research. And so lengthier content performs well with me, but LinkedIn maxes out your post to 1300 characters. And so I'll max out that 1300 characters all the time. I mean, probably three out of five posts, I try to max out because then we're starting to get into a little bit of the nerdy stuff here. But what happens is when it's longer text, that means people have to read more. And because they read more, they stay on the post longer. And when they stay on the post longer, LinkedIn goes, that must be better because people are sticking. And so usually long form content performs better. And that's pretty true across any social media platform. I mean, you know, on Facebook, my longer form posts tend to get more traction as well. So I, as far as what my format is though, is on Mondays, I tend to post more inspirational things like, Hey, here's this great success story. Or that's when I'll share something about my wife and kids Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, I talk business. So it's like, here's an SEO pain point. Here's how you solve it. Here's an SEO myth. Here's why it's not true. And I'll just give away the answers. Fridays tend to be a lot lower engagement. Obviously I think it's because people are checking out for the weekend. And so on Fridays I'll do the posts that are more like, here's a tip, but I don't really care if people engage on it so much. And so Fridays I tend to do like whatever sort of topic is maybe hyper niche and can't appeal to the the masses as much, but it's still valuable. Like I don't just do a throwaway post, but it's, you know, whatever one I'm okay with, with getting less traction. Yeah, interesting. Are you seeing Mondays go in that direction a little bit as well? Monday, Mondays do really well. It's Mondays yeah. do well, and then Tuesdays dip, 
And then Wednesdays, Thursdays are pretty, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays are, are pretty consistent. It's, it's the Fridays and I don't post on Saturdays or Sundays, so I don't, I don't have a clue on those, but um, Tuesdays dip a little bit and Fridays are, are, are down the most. Yeah. Interesting. No, that's, and, that's really helpful. Yeah. Cause I've kind of switched to video and I see the algorithm or at least the stats show the views it's going to be less because i think you actually have to view the video and not the post anymore or if you have a video embedded you have to watch three seconds is what it'll register as a view yeah okay and the, and the other thing the other thing is the time of day like for me i always post six somewhere between 6 30 a.m and 7 30 a.m my guess on why like if i post before or after that my views can be half and, and my guess as to why is because so i'm in utah and so i think that by 6.30, 7.30, the East Coast has already woke up, already driven to work, already got their coffee, and then are now spot-checking social media. And then on the West Coast, they're just waking up, they're sitting on the toilet, they're, do, they're like <laughs> doing whatever yeah. random stuff. But if it's if it's earlier than that, then the West Coast is asleep and the East Coast is is driving or in that initial grind and if it's later than that then like everybody's past their time wasting period and into grind mode so experiment with your time of day and also if you know for any of these listeners that are outside of the u.s like if your market is in the u.s then you also have to be sensitive to or if your market's in whatever country different than where you are you have to be sensitive to what time of day it is for them more than, than you, because if you want to get in front of their eyeballs, then you got to post when, when they're awake and online. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Kind of fundamentals, keep it simple, you know, work with the algorithms and not try to beat the algorithms and you know, mm-hmm. uh, make yeah. so I appreciate you spending a little bit more time. Cause I think that's going to be super helpful to, to folks on the, the tactical side. So, but before I let you go, one last question that I ask everybody. And the one thing I've been consistent through the hundred plus episodes is, you know, what is one thing you Damon would, would highly recommend? And it could be personal, it could be professional, something that's top of mind for you now, but you know, that's uh, like just as a, a strategy or skill set or concept in general or a specific type of one, anything, it could be, you know, somebody were recommended having a certain type of whiskey three days a week, <laughs> people that are doing <laughs> yoga to, um, you know, this book that they're reading right now. So it's, it's really whatever's, I would say two things come to mind. One is, um, f- figure out what your boundaries are. And, and what I mean is between like personal and, and business life, I've established pretty, I don't want to say rigid because that sounds rigid <laughs> and I've established pr- pretty good boundaries as far as like, I don't give clients my cell phone. I never have, um, our phones shut off at five. You can't get into us on weekends or after hours. I don't have email on my phone. I don't check emails on the weekend. And so that allows me to detach a little bit and, and be dad, which is important to me. And then, so like when I'm in dad mode, I'm in dad mode. And when I'm in work mode, I'm in work mode. And I think the question that commonly follows that is, well, how do you not lose business? And how, how do you not deal with fires? And for me, I proactively address it. So when we're negotiating with a client, we set those expectations. It's just about setting expectations. And in the contract, we set those expectations. We do really good at team onboarding. And so when we launch a new client, we have a structured process where it's like, James is a gentleman on my team. And so James sends this certain email at this sequence time. And then Stacy's on my team and she sends this email at this certain time and says, 
here's my role in the company and here's what to expect from me next. I'm going to send this to you at this point. And so as far as I know, I've never lost any business from doing that. And, and probably even if I had, it was probably for the better because the people that want me available 24 seven are not the clients that I want to deal with. And if you go to that Forbes link that I mentioned earlier, the first post I ever wrote for Forbes was a title along the lines of constant connectivity does not equal productivity. And if you are wanting to do business with somebody that's available 24 seven, they, you're going to annoy the shit out of them. And even if you don't annoy them, like you're not going to, they're not going to have the flexibility to deliver the best product and service to you. So it's really important and healthy on both sides, consumer and the business owner to establish like what those, what those timeframes are for you and what those boundaries are for you. And whatever that is, is fine. Just properly communicate whatever that is. I said two things, but I don't remember what the other thing was now. So (laughs) that's so good. And I've been slowly doing it myself. So I turned off notifications on my phone, right? So I don't get it during the day. I'll have it on, but then I, I dropped my Apple watch. So no longer, is there a constant, it drives my wife nuts. And I think that's the only one that it bothers because I can't, I don't get her text necessarily in real time, but it's changed. I mean, it's been kind of freeing without over-exaggerating you yeah. know, with the day, just because if I have it on, if I'm in the middle of something, you get it's just natural to, to look at it. So I've been watch free for about two months. Yeah. And I haven't quantified the productivity improvements, but it's gone up and everybody's to your point, everybody's adjusted, right? And you have to work. There's, there's, there's some studies that are out there and I don't know the specifics of it, but what comes to mind is it's, it was something like it takes 15 minutes to recover from an interruption. And so if you think about you, you, between your phone messages and if you have your Apple watch and this and that, and you're like, I turn off all the notifications on all the programs I run. I don't have emails on automatic send and receive. Like I turned off the doc notifications. So it doesn't show account. Like I only get emails when I manually push the button and I'm ready to open Pandora's box. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think about all the different interruptions you have between Slack, Skype, messenger, email, whatever it may be. And if it takes 15 minutes to fully recover to be back to full productivity and you're getting five interruptions every 15 minutes like you're never fully recovering to full productivity i remember the other thing i was going to say i was, was going to say give yourself the freedom to explore and come and i, I kind of say like date your jobs date your opportunities because uh one thing that i'm confident led to contributed a lot to my success is i never prematurely committed to anything i never forced myself to go, we, we obviously all want the next level of success, but I never forced myself to go, how do I get there now? Because it's important to go, if it takes you steps one through five to get to your next level and you skip two, three, and four, there's these little things that you don't learn along the way that are negatively going to impact you later or make it so that level five is, is not sustainable long-term. So I've always been comfortable with, um, figuring out the right way with however long that takes and give yourself the, the freedom to not have to prematurely commit. Because I mean, even if it gets you there slightly quicker, it's probably not going to be sustainable, but even if it is sustainable, it's going to stress you out. Like, like yeah. just give yourself a break to turn off. Social media is good and bad, right? It's good because it, you should celebrate your wins and it should glorify some of the things that come along with entrepreneurial territory, but it's also hyper unrealistic. Like you don't know what, when you see your friends celebrate that win, like you don't know 
how many years of work it took or what sacrifices to get there. So be happy for them, but don't feel like that in the next two weeks, you need to reproduce what took them 10 years because you, you don't know that part of the equation. Yeah, no, I love that. It's so true. It's so easy to fall into that trap. Well, this person did it in three months. I'm way behind schedule. Now you're on your own schedule. It took me a long time. I'm obviously much older than you are, but you know, as I say, better late than never. And you're right. The other advice I give folks is, you know, be passionate about what you're doing and life is too short and, and don't rush. Cause I used to chase the shiny object as well. Say, oh, that looks really cool. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And then instead of taking a, a step back and assessing it overall and, you know, good and bad, but I think just staying and doing something that you're not passionate about or excited about is probably the worst thing you could do. I know you got to pay the well, bills. That's, that's a good topic. I have a lot of other friends that have found some level of success doing different ventures but a lot of them do you want to pick one thing and commit to it and then at the end of 10 years be a rock star or do you want to try 10 things over 10 years and still be at the starting line in 10 years you know and all all my friends like I've, i've just stuck to seo for 14 years and when anytime i talk to any of my other friends that have found success in doing multiple things I tell, like, I've been very intentional about saying no to other opportunities and it's not that they don't look exciting and there definitely is a temptation, but every time I talk to another friend that has found some success, like they got, they got five things going on to equate to the same level of success that I have with one thing. And then, and the few that have greater success than me, then I say, well, you know, that's cool that you're doing multiple things. And sometimes I think about every single one of them goes, don't do it. Don't take on more than one thing. Even, even if they found great success, you know, for one reason or another, usually stress or impact on family and relationships, every, literally every single one says, don't do it. That's interesting. I yeah, I can absolutely see it. So yeah, again, part of why I, I started the podcast and getting back into the, the entrepreneurship is, you know, I lived on both sides of the, the, the startup space and the, the enterprise space and the enterprise space, I think is changing with some of the remote and the companies that you're building. You think you'd mentioned you've only met a, a handful of your employees or maybe a little mm-hmm. more than that, but I mean, there's a way to do this where everybody kind of wins versus the old days where you went to work, you did your job, you got paid. And if you did your job well, then you got promoted, whether it was something that excited you or not, that's just what you did. And now I'm really, really encouraging people to look differently and find something. And I know if you're passionate about something that doesn't pay the bills, it may not be realistic, but find something in your life that, that does excite you. So I think, yeah, I think maybe, maybe to wrap this up, it's a, it's an interesting point. And I think COVID revealed a lot of those vulnerabilities because historically the masses would say that the nine to five job was stable and secure. And I think COVID obviously is an anomaly, but the total opposite happened. The, the, the majority, not the majority, but you know, a big chunk of people that survived and thrived were the, were the entrepreneurs. And, and there were certainly some that, that got hit as well, but I think it evened it out. It's not as secure anymore. And I don't think that it, it will ever be again, that the nine to five is more secure than going out on your own. So it's just like, you know, how much risk do you want to take? What's your risk tolerance? Because it's, it's going to be present in either situation. Yeah. And again, what you, what you want out of it. And like I said, I, I, I did write about a couple things with COVID. I think it's a super fascinating time because we've got companies that are forcing employees back to the office. 
And then others that said, Hey, we'll continue to work remote. And, you know, my, my one thing is I don't think people are opposed to an office. If it's there, it's the commute, right? I did the commute, except yeah. the yeah. commute, man, if you're making somebody go more than 30 minutes each way every day, and they haven't done that for 15 months, they're know. not going to stick around. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think it's, it's super fascinating where we're going. And like I said, the business you've built is, is the model of the future, I believe, just because that's where people are going to work. And, you know, I think people completely off topic now, but, you know, I think, you know, while it's social, we need people in the office and bond and collaborate. I'm like, well, I think if you've replaced that social, give remote employees, a chance to network or get together with folks, maybe not even the same company, but they get a social aspect to their day. Mm-hmm. You know, how many, how often you're, you're working with people that you didn't choose to work with most of the time in the corporate, right? It's just <laughs> working there. So yeah. if you can replace that again, I'm no expert, but I, like I said, I'm, I'm super fascinated to see, you know, the next two, five years, how all this plays out. As of two months ago, we went from 20 employees to 30, and I'm probably going to hire another two to five here in the next week or two. And I've only met six of them. And and that six was last year. That's a whole other story. It was right when COVID happened. But I've, I've never had, with the exception of one employee who, who had a unique opportunity that I encouraged them to take. Other than that, I've never had an employee quit in 14 years, and they've all been remote. So the reason why I mentioned that is to emphasize what you said, like you can build those unique opportunities to still foster a warm environment, even in a remote situation. Yeah, that's awesome. Maybe a whole nother episode. We'll have you come back and talk about the business of the future. Yeah. So, I've taken <laughs> yeah. A, a ton of your time today, Damon. I, I loved it. I think there was so much information. I know we got a little technical, but I think you have to in this, this, this space because it's so important to, to the foundation. So if people want to reach out and connect more with you, I know we gave it out a couple of times, but what's the best way for, for people to, uh, to connect with you? Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn is my platform of choice. I'm most active on there. I'm fairly active on Facebook as well. Company is seonational.com. And if you want to get into the more technical stuff, you can go to freeseobook.com and get a copy of it's a 135 page book. It's a book book. And it starts with some fun stories about, you know, how I outranked billion dollar companies and, I tried to start with entertaining stories before I transitioned into the technical stuff, but the stories still emphasize the value and return in SEO. So you can, you can download a free copy of that as well. Yeah. Highly recommended. And it didn't feel like reading. It was more like, all right, what do I need to do next? <laughs> so that's so yeah. you doing that. And I appreciate the the time today, Damon. It was like I said, super valuable and, uh, continue to wish you nothing but success. And we'll, we'll have to do a check-in with you here, maybe another six months and see. Yeah where the digital world has taken us, if anything major has happened. And yeah, I'd love to, to keep tabs. Yeah, let's do it. Thanks for, thanks for me having you, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right, Damon, have a great rest of your day. Thanks. We'll see you.